Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and for this episode, I have three new reviews to share with you. We are going to just jump straight on in and get to it. First up, we have the Super Mario Brothers movie from Universal Pictures and Illumination Studio. It stars the voice of Chris Pratt, Anya Taylor-Joy, Charlie Day, Jack Black, Keegan-Michael Key, Seth Rogen, and Fred Armisen. It is directed by Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelinek, and it is written by Matthew Fogel and based on the Super Mario video games by Nintendo. Music is composed by Brian Tyler and Koji Kondo, the original composer for the first Mario games and much of the series as well as the Legend of Zelda series. The movie runs 92 minutes and is rated PG for action and mild violence. What's it about? A Brooklyn plumber named Mario travels through the Mushroom Kingdom with a princess named Peach and an anthropomorphic mushroom named Toad to find Mario's brother Luigi and to save the world from a ruthless fire-breathing Koopa named Bowser. Now, if you listened to my review earlier this week about Air, I mentioned that I wasn't going to review this film. I decided to skip a press screening and see it with my son on opening day in 3D. We were very excited for it. I was highly anticipating this, and I'm an obsessive gamer. So I really love this property and had high, high, high hopes that it would be outstanding Maybe my perspective going in will help get your expectations in check for what this experience is like. So the Super Mario Brothers movie, in my opinion, is a real missed opportunity that left me feeling more disappointed than anything else. Illumination always has crisp and clean animation. It's rarely unique or boundary pushing, and this is no different. The film is definitely visually appealing, though. It's extremely vibrant, with the characters and the world looking very much like the most recent 3D games. The musical score by Brian Tyler and Koji Kondo is absolutely wonderful. It has many variations on recognizable video game level themes that I immediately recognized and was humming along with in the background. As expected, there are references, you can call them Easter eggs, aplenty, and not just to the Mario games either, but also other Nintendo intellectual property. As a lifelong fan, I definitely enjoyed those in the moment, though their use was almost always simply good for just a quick wink before moving right along at warp pipe speed to the next one. My favorite sequences were a couple of platforming scenes. One of them was 2D, one of them was 3D. The crew picking their carts and then heading out onto Rainbow Road. And then my favorite character, Dry Bones, getting a brief moment in the spotlight. That brought me a lot of joy. Unfortunately, for folks that did watch the trailers, I found that there is very little new in the way of big surprises. And while I enjoyed seeing representations of several famous Mario lands. I really hated how brief each visit was, and I I just kept wishing that we had stayed there longer and gotten to experience them and learn about them more. The plot and the characters are where this movie completely fails. (laughs) It is 
clear that the target audience was young kids. And that's fine. They'll enjoy this. Many adults will enjoy this too, but adults have to take the kids to the movies. And so you need to serve both audiences to some extent. Even elementary aged kids, I feel, and somewhat younger, deserve and are capable of appreciating so much more story than this film has to offer. I know that there is much debate to be had about whether a game with no story, like the Mario series, needs a movie adaptation to have one to be successful. But you can firmly put me in the camp that yes, it absolutely does. The two entertainment mediums of games and movies are so vastly different in the way that you experience them. And if I wanted something with so little narrative, then I'd rather be playing a version of Super Mario Odyssey 2 than I would watching this. The setup amounts to a rescue mission of Luigi, who hardly factors into the adventure at all once they get to the Mushroom Kingdom. That coincides with Peach trying to stop Bowser because he is going to destroy her world, the Mushroom Kingdom, and a whole bunch of other ones too, unless she marries him. Does that make him an incel? I kind of think it does. That one sentence summary is literally as deep as the story gets explored, and I found that to be a total shame. Characterizations are also Paper Mario thin. No one is particularly interesting or memorable, unlike, say, Sonic, by comparison, who was treated in his movie like a character that was going to have depth, he had a personality, he went on an emotional journey, he had interesting relationships, and he had a full arc. None of that happens in this movie. Peach and Bowser do have some personality at least, and the voice performances by Anya Taylor-Joy and Jack Black absolutely rock. The latter's musical ballads especially are an absolute treat. But the rest of the group is annoying at worst. I'm looking at you, Seth Rogen and tolerable at best. One quick note about that too, before you get outraged over Chris Pratt's lack of an Italian accent, that's actually intentional. So I would say that's the fault of the writers. It's explained in the opening section of the film when we first learn who the brothers are and see what their life in Brooklyn, New York is all about before they get magically whisked away to the Mushroom Kingdom. You're of course absolutely free not to like his accent, I know that I personally did miss Charles Martinet's iconic sound for sure, but just know that it isn't Pratt necessarily being incapable of doing an Italian accent or making the choice not to. It's the writers. It's how the story is being told. His character isn't supposed to speak like that. But yeah, there's simply no depth in the personalities or the relationships beyond the barest of video game traits we already knew about each of these characters. This movie is a hollow transference of animation from a world which you are used to interacting with into one that you just passively observe. Sure, they flip the most basic of scripts by instead of having Mario rescuing the princess, they make Peach a badass leader who is part of the team. But aside from that, there is just no innovative explanation about anything in this crazy world. Like, tell us why power-ups exist and how they work. Or why the power star that Bowser is after is so powerful. What makes it this special item in this universe? Or 
why are there these magical warp pipes connecting this place to Earth? How does that work? Why does that exist? Plus, no characters are defined in new ways that make it, in my opinion, even worth doing an adaptation in the first place. You're just wasting the whole IP. There's no point in this because it doesn't add anything to what we already have experienced or can experience in the games. And if Illumination's track record is any indication, you can bet that they'll be taking advantage of the franchisability here and making more. A post-credit scene teaser clearly hints at what a sequel to this might entail. And the Nintendo brand is so deep and full of beloved properties that they could churn out nostalgia bait recreations for the next decade and just rake in the money. Look, it was fine. I laughed a few times. I actually smiled a lot. I have the history with Mario, so I enjoyed it. It went down very easy, and its high-energy presentation made the 90-minute runtime fly by. But I sadly doubt that I'll ever desire to watch this again. It's just so, so lazy. Super Mario Brothers is more like Super Meh Rio Brothers to me. I still recommend it, though, especially for families as a one-time watch. The youngest of kids, they're going to eat this up. The movie is in theaters now. I think it's worth going to see. But my goodness, did they leave so much potential on the table. And frankly, I just can't help but wish it had been a whole lot more. Sticking with the animation, the next film for review is Suzume from Crunchyroll. It stars the voices of Nanaka Hara, Hakuto Matsumura, Eri Fukatsu, Shota Semitani, Saira Ito, Katone Hanase, Kane Hanazawa, and Matsumoto Hakao II. It is written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. Character designs are by Maisayoshi Tanaka, animation direction by Kenichi Tsuchiya, art direction by Takumi Tanji, and music by Radwimps and Kazuma Janucci. It runs 122 minutes. Its language is in Japanese, although there will be an English dub showing available theatrically in the States as well. And it is rated PG for action, peril, language, thematic elements, and smoking. What's it about? A 17-year-old girl named Suzume helps a mysterious young man close magical doors that are releasing disasters all over Japan. I guess we're going to keep the trend going here. This was an animated film that I had even higher expectations for than the Mario movie, considering my deep, deep love of director Makoto Shinkai's entire filmography. And yet, like with the previous film, I came away feeling much more disappointed than I wanted to. Eye-popping animation is one of the things that Shinkai has become known for, and the visual presentation here is expectedly extremely striking. Whether it is the awe-inspiring depiction of a giant, shadowy, worm-like creature expanding across the sky, or just the gorgeous detail in the idyllic landscapes and places around Japan that are visited during the character's road trip, Every single frame feels so full of attention and care. The score, another collaboration with Radwimps, is beautiful at times, but not quite a standout. With the exception of the character's excellent main theme, I've been singing that constantly, so I have to give it a little bit of love. 
There's just something about both of these elements, look and sound, however, that while still very good, are much less memorable to me than most of the director's previous work. There's a fantastical element to this particular story that is present in a much more direct way than most of his previous work as well, where Shinkai usually leans into slice of life mixed with sci-fi themes. Suzume is much more magical. The story feels very Miyazaki-like, honestly, and I think that it's intentional. I think Shinkai knows that because there is a line of dialogue that directly references one of that legendary director's films. The primary plot is about preventing future natural disasters and reckoning with the personal grief and ways that the Great East Japan earthquake of March 11th, 2011 changed the lives of people in that country forever. It's a wonderful idea and is one that I respect massively because the film uses fiction to address a very real trauma in this nation. It also provides a solid motivation for characters to journey across the countryside together and gives Shinkai an opportunity to touch on his reoccurring message of awareness about climate change. But where the film shockingly and sadly falls short for me is in its relationships. We are thrown right into the action with Suzume, discovering a mystical door to another world and a mysterious man named Suda who is trying to keep it shut. The road trip kicks off pretty quickly when Suzume and a talking chair begin traveling around the country, chasing a cat-like creature who they believe is responsible for opening doors to let natural disasters occur. Along the way, Suzume's past is revealed in flashback sequences so that we come to understand how impactful a great familial loss has been and why she is living with her aunt now. The journey has exciting action and some sweet periods of relief too, where Suzume makes new friends along the way. There is an undercurrent of romance, but it's not nearly as heavily focused on as usually is in previous Shinkai films. Suzume, while a solid heroine herself, and no doubt someone that I was rooting for, just never felt thoroughly developed to me. Not as much as Shinkai's other leading ladies, unfortunately. And I'm not sure it's a strength when the talking sidekick chair is the character whose personality I found most interesting. There are plenty of wonderful individual scenes, of course, and there's some really good humor, but lacking was that deep emotional connection that I typically experience when I watch this director's stories. They usually get under my skin. They really throw me for a loop, and I'm left contemplating my own life, my own past relationships, my future, and nothing happens. Movie ended, and it was just over. That that did not have the same effect. I've never been shy about admitting that I prefer good English dubs for anime when available, and I hope that during a future viewing in that format, maybe the character development won't come off as quite so disjointed. As it stands, I don't see Suzume herself or anyone else from this story sticking in my thoughts, though, in the way that those past characters have. Her journey is still fun. It's an adventurous romp worth taking that will look and sound spectacular on an IMAX screen. But for those of us who can't relate to the specific history of Japan and how that is impacting these characters, 
There's simply just not as much to latch on to this time around. It's a definite recommend for me. Susan May will be in theaters on April the 14th in both Japanese and English in the States. But this is lower tier Shinkai. It's still very good, even though it's lower tier Shinkai, and it's still desirable compared to most studio animation. So I highly recommend it, but this is not as good as Your Name. It is not as good as Weathering With You. It is not as good at five centimeters per second. It's not as good as almost everything else that the director has made. And I'm a little sad about that. Last film we have to talk about is How to Blow Up a Pipeline from Neon. It stars Christine Froseth, Lucas Gage, Forrest Goodluck, Sasha Lane, Jamie Lawson, Marcus Scribner, Jake Weary, and Irene Bedard. It is directed by Daniel Goldhaber. It is written by Ariella Bearer, Jordan Soule, and Daniel Goldhaber, and it is based on the nonfiction book How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. Cinematography is by Tehila DiCastro. Music is by Gavin Brivik. It runs 104 minutes and is rated R for language throughout and some drug use. What's it about? A crew of environmental activists plot a daring plan to disrupt an oil pipeline. Man, what a riveting eco-thriller this is. It feels both instructional in its procedural sections, kind of like a cinematic anarchist's cookbook, if you know what that is, and educational, too, about the mindset of a group of fed-up environmental terrorists who come together, heist film, crew-up style, with the goal of taking down a major oil pipeline. Everyone has their own motivations, but their end goal is the same. Sochi is the person who has learned all about the industry's impact on communities and become obsessed with saving the world via bold action. Sean has tried his hands at spreading truth through movie making and feels that he's reached a point where no impact is had. Theo has cancer, likely from living so close to a chemical plant, and her romantic partner, Alicia, seems to be in the group do more just to support her lover, than her own ideals. Michael, my favorite of the bunch, is a Native American young man, tired of having his land and people abused, tired of having his mom tell him to just take a conservative approach. He's the bomb-building mastermind of the gang, and he learned everything he needs to know on YouTube. Then there's Rowan and Logan, a couple of activists who seem to get off on the risk and who factor into one of the film's interesting late surprises significantly. And then lastly, we have Dwayne, a struggling father and husband whose land was taken from him, eminent domain style, when the pipeline was being built there in Texas. His fury resonates the strongest of all for me personally. All of the performances are outstanding and fully believable. A few actors may be recognizable, but there's no real star power here, and that's a good thing, because it never takes you out of the moment. It's very grounded, and that lends itself to an almost non-fiction-like feeling as the events are unfolding. There's not much time spent on debating the ethics of what is going to go down, since we drop in after everyone is already on board with the plan. 
There is one standout conversation among the group where they briefly discuss the consequences of their actions on themselves and the people they are trying to protect, whether or not they should be deemed terrorists and how they'll be remembered. But the story is framed more like a call to action or dramatized cinematic manifesto. These activists are refreshingly portrayed as fully realized human beings and not just nameless villains or troublemakers. Each of them has a backstory revealed through very strong flashback sequences. And as mentioned above, they each have their own unique and powerful reason for being radicalized to this point of action. You could almost mistake director Daniel Goldhaber for the Safdie brothers with how highly intense the film is throughout. The anxiety within the group is palpable at all times, and it is relayed through exceptionally tight editing and an energetic electronic score that features resounding bass, the constant rumble of which has you attuned to the risky situation throughout the story and always on edge, anticipating the inevitable coming explosion. It's an undeniably entertaining and propulsive movie as well as one that is sure to make you think. I really appreciated this viewpoint of environmental concerns from the perspective of a storyteller who is clearly convinced that this is the only way to bring about necessary change and who honestly seems utterly uninterested in crafting a deeply conversational piece that accounts for, quote, both sides of the issue. As the story wraps up, the message is clear, and one has to honestly wonder just what seeing this might do to someone who is already wavering on the edge of taking action themselves. It's a doozy. This movie is a strong recommend from me, though. How to Blow Up a Pipeline, it's available in theaters now, and it is one of my favorite films of the year so far. It, it took me on just a gripping ride from start to finish. I cared about the characters. I never quite knew whether I wanted them to succeed or not, but I understood their reasons and I understood the cost as well. And it just really stuck with me after seeing it, got underneath my skin, didn't want to watch anything else, didn't want to play any video games, just kind of wanted to sit with it. And I love, love, love movies that do that. I recommend seeing this with someone. It's the kind of film that you're going to want to have a conversation about afterwards. Plan ahead. Go out to dinner after you see this movie or go get some drinks and just talk about it. Talk about your experience and your feelings with what you saw. It's not just entertainment. It does have a message. Political, activism, but not in an off-putting way like so many movies can be. I think this is a powerful, powerful film. And yeah, again, strong recommend from me. Well, that's it for this episode of FF+. Plus. If you're new here, thank you for listening. I appreciate that, and I hope you're enjoying yourself. You can always find me on social media if you want to reach out and let us know what you think about the show, about any of the movies, if you see them yourself. There are links to all of our accounts in the show notes to each and every episode. Also, be sure and check out the other great shows on our network, Now Playing Network, you can find those at nowplayingnetwork.net. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.